This is Who Killed Jane Stanford, the podcast. The suspects named in the press included Bertha Burner, Ah Wing, the butler Beverly, and the maid Elizabeth Richmond. However, no arrests were made. You're listening to A Bird in a Gilded Cage, one of the most popular songs in 1900, selling over two million copies of sheet music. Lyrics include, She's only a bird in a gilded cage, for loved ones now laid at rest. A tall marble monument marked the grave of one who'd been fashion's queen, and I thought she is happier here at rest. Years after her murder, one of Jane's closest confidants still wondered why the investigation had ceased and wrote, quote, To me, facts are facts, and history is history, and neither should be denied or distorted. But I doubt that anyone can justly or properly cover this subject in a few paragraphs without leaving a false impression in the public mind. This is Who Killed Jane Stanford, the podcast. Now, we begin our deeper investigation, focusing less on who killed Jane and more on how her murder disappeared. We cannot know why Jane was killed, but we can know why we don't know. If I were to kill someone, I would want to go back to 1905 when David Starr Jordan made getting away with murder look pretty easy. Jordan's impressive ability to suppress unwelcome news and revenge his enemies came as no surprise after Jane's death in 1905. Rather, it was a recurring pattern of his. When Jordan acts to protect the university and his own personal image, he does not stop at the cost of others, and the Goebel Affair demonstrates exactly that. When Goebel was abruptly dismissed from Stanford's faculty shortly after Jane's death in 1905 by David Starr Jordan, the grounds for his removal amounted to little more than Goebel being a difficult character. But there is more to the story. A lot more. Julius Goebel was both a close confidant of Jane Stanford's and a critical character of what was known at the time as the Gilbert Affair, a sex scandal on campus between a married professor and a young woman in the library. Both of these were great threats to Jordan. They hit him exactly where he was weakest. Even though Jane officially gave up her power within the university in 1903, she still kept a watchful eye on the happenings within the school and felt a natural ownership of the institution. It was her child. It was Julius Goebel who allowed her to remain connected and up to date. He was her man on the inside. The two wrote letters to one another and communicated often. I shall never forget when she implored me to tell her the truth about the university. Jane sought advice from Goebel, and he would report to her the information on the innermost workings of the university, such as the strongest and weakest departments, professors, and courses within the school. When Goebel suggested that she should seek such information from the president, she became upset. She said it was impossible for her to obtain the truth from him, that, in fact, she knew he was deceiving her. Goebel sensed Jane's skepticism, her wavering confidence, and most importantly, her distrust in Jordan's ability as president of the university. Goebel painted Jordan as the common enemy. The confidence in the management of our university is shaken, but your high ideals of the university and your noble desire to realize them stand in strange contrast 
to the actual conditions existing here. Goebel did not care for Jordan, and Jordan felt the same way about Goebel. Their rivalry was anything but subtle. In fact, the two were very open about their distaste for one another. Professor Goebel has an utter disregard of the rights of others in his personal and university relations. Jordan is loathed and despised, not only by his students and professors, but practically by the whole academic world. Jordan knew he couldn't get rid of Goebel while Jane was still around. But as soon as the news of her death made its way to Palo Alto, Goebel's removal became a top priority. And as president of the university, Jordan didn't need anyone's approval to do so. On May 25th, when Goebel applied for the sabbatical leave of absence for one year to which he was entitled, Jordan replied by saying that his leave would be granted on one condition, that he hand in a letter of resignation and leave the Stanford faculty discreetly and without question. Goebel's intimate relationship with Jane wasn't the only threat to Jordan. The real threat came from Goebel's involvement and knowledge on the sex scandal occurring at the university. Jordan knew that this investigation of the Gilbert affair would result in the exposure of Gilbert as well as of himself and of his coterie, and he made up his mind that it had to be prevented at any price. Charles Gilbert, a professor at Stanford, had been having an affair with a young woman when he was seen by an assistant librarian named Schmidt. A former student of Goebbels, Schmidt told him what he had seen. Once the newspapers caught word of the sex scandal, Jordan and the rest of the faculty did what they could to refuse the rumors and defend Gilbert, but Goebel knew the truth. Without hesitation, Jordan ruthlessly blackmailed and bullied Schmidt until it became necessary for him to leave the university. However, Goebel still had the protection of Jane. In order to protect his friends, Jordan did not hesitate to get rid of his enemies. Once Jane was out of the picture, he could finally get rid of Goebel, the only man who knew the truth about Gilbert and had testified that before her death, Jane was intending to reinvestigate the Gilbert scandal. These matters led her to contemplate the final remedy, the removal of the president. Goebel was a great threat to Jordan, and so Jordan decided to do something about it. While Jordan doesn't kill Goebel, he kills his reputation, his character, and his career. He lies, falsifies information, puts forth lousy evidence, and is willing to sacrifice others' public image, all in effort to prove his point. Could the Goebel affair have been a dress rehearsal for the final act, Jane's murder? After all, if he could make sex go away, why should murder be any different? Just days after Jane's death, Jordan set sail to Honolulu with his own team of investigators and medical experts. Before leaving for Hawaii, the cause of death was straightforward. Jane had died of strychnine poisoning. Once they got back to California, the entire story changes. Jordan set on a mission to falsify the Honolulu investigation. And just like with the Gilbert affair of Julius Goebel, he was not afraid to destroy whoever stood in his way. And for Dr. Humphreys, the doctor who procured the autopsy, Jordan needed to destroy him in order to sell his own story. In letters to both Samuel Lead and Monfred Wilson, Jane's trust and legal advisors, Jordan suggests that the evidence at the scene of Jane's death had been tampered with. I am becoming morally certain from various small indications that strychnine was put in the bicarbonate of soda after the death of Mrs. Stanford. The carbonate, with a trace of strychnine, was for some hours in the possession of Dr. Humphreys. Dr. Humphreys thus became a tool to falsify the original investigation and warrant a need for a new one, one where Jordan called the shots. 
In only four short days in Hawaii, Jordan concludes his investigation. Jane Stanford had died of natural causes. Before leaving for Honolulu, Jordan reads a condolence letter from Fred Baker. He died in our house from angina pectoris, which we had not expected during an attack of acute indigestion. Mrs. Stanford's case suggests some such condition. This letter becomes integral to how Jordan changes the story of how Jane died. This is the purpose of those four days in Hawaii. They needed to fabricate the evidence and testimonies that would support the idea that Jane died of natural causes, or more specifically, angina pectoris. Jordan dedicates these four days into supporting a story that he wants to tell, one where Jane died of indigestion and angina pectoris. This is where Dr. Waterhouse, Jordan's hired physician, comes in. Dr. Waterhouse's diagnosis was a form of angina pectoris, due, he thought most probably, to a rupture of the coronary artery. The heart was carefully preserved and sent to Dr. William Ophels and a committee of surgeons of the Cooper Medical College staff who reported the rupture of the coronary. Jordan references Dr. Ophels, who allegedly conducted a post-mortem autopsy on Jane's heart. However, the report where he concludes this has never been found. And this isn't the only way he covers up her poisoning. She went on a picnic, overdoing herself and overeating the generous luncheon provided by the Hotel Moana. Jordan takes several steps to make sure that his medical theory is supported. He covers all his bases, even suggesting that her death was largely due to indigestion. He begins to contradict the statements in the original autopsy. The symptoms were those of heart failure with heart neuralgia or angina pectoris. However, the symptoms of angina pectoris did not match up with Jane's symptoms at the time of her death. Those who were diagnosed with angina pectoris suffered from pain and tightness in the chest, jaw, or neck due to issues of the heart. It was a medical condition that sounded serious enough to kill off Jane and was extremely easy to claim, but incredibly difficult to prove post-mortem. Can you imagine death by strychnine, one of the most horrible of all forms, without one of the symptoms appearing? Yet prior to her death, she experienced painful muscle spasms and her feet were described as unnaturally arched. She claimed to have jaws so rigid that she could not unclench them. These collective symptoms are synonymous with those who have been poisoned by strychnine and unexplainable by angina pectoris and indigestion. Angina pectoris is an unlikely source of death for Jane, given that she never had any circulatory issues in the past prior to her alleged death by angina pectoris. When Jordan sits down to write his autobiography nearly 15 years after her death, he's confronted with a dilemma of which story to include of how Jane died, by poisoning or natural causes. In my autobiography, I shall not go into many details as to Mrs. Stanford's death, but I think that the university should have a record of the circumstances that led to this widespread idea that she was poisoned. Years later, Jordan still cannot let this go, and he spends his life, up until the day he dies, defending his narrative of how Jane died. However, the final narrative that he concludes in his autobiography shortly before he died was that Jane had died of natural causes, not strychnine poisoning. In the 1890s and early 1900s, the best way for people to get their news was the newspaper. Therefore, the newspapers controlled the narrative, and this was the heyday for yellow journalism. Joseph Pulitzer and William Hearst thrived off the idea that a story that sells is better than one that is accurate. Unlike a detective on the case, newspapers were quick to grab a great story when they found one. The story of a public figure as large as Jane Stanford, the star of a poison and a murder story, made all the headlines. 
After the first poisoning, one New York newspaper headline reads, Mrs. Stanford's peril, work of a miscreant. The article continues, It came out today that an attempt was made to poison Mrs. Jane L. Stanford in her California Street home. For the yellow journalists, it was a gold rush. Once Jane could no longer speak for herself, the newspaper spoke for her instead. Two days after her death, the Chicago Evening Post read, Physicians in Honolulu established fact that strychnine killed rich widow of senator. By the time the story reached the New York Journal, the facts had blurred. In the era of yellow journalism, headlines soon made the story. Police know murderer of Mrs. Stanford. This proves conclusively, it is believed, that death was the result of a conspiracy formed in California over a month ago. Across the country, these stories lined up. Eleven days after her death, when David Starr Jordan's narrative began to surface, the San Francisco Star first reported that. The verdict is by no means conclusive to us. What was the character of evidence before the Stanford jury, we do not at present know. But if it was not any more than that with which the yellow journals of this city have befogged, befooled, and exploited the people during the past ten days... This change in story from what both newspapers around the country and the Star itself had been reporting was a result of the different narratives the papers received. Before, there was a consensus that poison was the culprit. By the end of March, the Jordan narrative of natural causes or suicide had taken hold in the papers as a possible explanation. Aside from a few articles, after the spring, the story all but disappeared, still officially unsolved. No follow-up, no conviction, no conclusion to the mystery. Poof. After 1905, there was barely any mention of the passing of Jane Stanford until 1940. By then, the story wasn't murder anymore anyway. While there is an account of her life and her influence on the university, all it says is, The precious boy had died in far-off Italy. The loving mother spent her last days in Hawaii. She died in Honolulu, February 28th, 1905. The blockbuster of a story was gone. Why a murder of such proportions would fade away unsolved is a mystery on its own. As George Crothers pointed out in a letter to Miss Fremont Older in 1947, It is a matter which should have been subject of a full and adequate current report. In this case, it likely was because someone wanted the story gone. Few had the influence to remove a story from the newspaper, but President Jordan did, as he had proven with the aforementioned Goebel affair, where he requested to all of the area newspapers to suppress reports on the subject. Also, prior to the second poisoning and death, Jordan wrote a letter to the student correspondents, asking them to not send anything in which Mrs. Stanford's name appears without bringing your note first to the president's office in order that the correctness of the statement may be verified. Knowing he controlled the Stanford University word to the papers, the next step was the papers themselves. And although he wasn't able to keep the poison or murder stories out of the paper, there is evidence that he tried. In a letter to Susan L. Mills in late March, Jordan stated that Miss Stanford's death was quote-unquote under the domain of yellow journalism and therefore out of his hands. However, after pushing his own narrative of natural cause in the public for weeks, he expressed at the end of March to Dr. Bert Howard that since my return from Honolulu, the newspapers are letting us alone. There is no doubt that an incompetent and tricky physician used the opportunity to join the yellow throng. 
Even if it wasn't Jordan's influence that made the murder story disappear, its disappearance was exactly what he wanted. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, and Jordan did get lucky about a year later. The earthquake in early 1906, while devastating to the city of San Francisco and the Bay Area, created a brand new story for the papers to run with, and made sure that many of the records of the events were gone forever. Much of what remained was the narrative he had created, and the case was closed. Like any good crime drama, the first is a mysterious, elusive detective with questionable techniques. It's Jules J. Callenden. Remember him? He investigated the pool and water incident when the first attempt was made on Jane's life. I would stake my good right eye against one dollar that no attempt was made to poison Mrs. Stanford. He was wrong about that, but he's hired anyway by Jane's attorney, Mountford Wilson, to investigate the circumstances surrounding Jane's death. So on March 11th, he heads to Honolulu to begin his investigation. Just three days after the coroner's jury had reached their decision. The jurors, upon their oath, do say that Jane Lathrop Stanford came to her death from strychnine poisoning said strychnine having been introduced into a bottle of bicarbonate soda with felonious intent. Callenden was supposedly hired to make sure everything checked out, but it didn't. When Callenden concluded his investigation, David Starr Jordan announced that no evidence supported the idea that Jane had been murdered. Mrs. Stanford's death was not due to strychnine poisoning. We think it probable that her death was due to a combination of advanced age, unaccustomed exertion, unsuitable food, and unusual exposure at the picnic party. And this raises the question, what did Callenden find that the initial investigators didn't? It turns out he simply obtained new testimony from the same witnesses that the coroner's jury had heard. And after conducting these interviews, huge contradictions began to emerge. Bertha Berner's story changed entirely. And this began to cast doubts on the jury's findings. The jury finds one thing, and Callenden makes a completely different conclusion. Who are we supposed to believe? The answer lies in Callenden's techniques. Callenden is quite a mysterious figure. At 16, Harry Morse hired him and brought him into the Morse Detective Agency. By his early 20s, Callenden is promoted to captain of the agency. And as a private detective, he isn't just called on to solve things. The veil of mystery surrounding the tragic death of Charles E. Hayes in Golden Gate Park near the midnight hour of yesterday has been lifted. It was Mrs. O'Connell, a congressman's daughter, a married woman, who took that wild ride with the man whose death stroke came beneath the drizzling rain and in the inky darkness that at that hour shrouded the great pleasure ground. A sudden turn of the animal drawing the buggy in its desire to go to the casino is supposed to have caused the accident. Hayes was thrown out through the front of his buggy, striking a rock by the roadside. He pitched out headfirst, striking on his forehead, and never moved after reaching the ground. Panic-stricken, with all the grisly shapes of terror about her, Mrs. O'Connell started for the Cliff House for shelter. After reaching the Cliff House, Mrs. O'Connell telephoned to her brother-in-law, 
Captain Cullenden, for he arrived at the cliff house in a carriage before morning and took her to her home. When the ambulance reached Hayes, the woman was gone. He's called on to make things go away. With this in mind, Callendon's investigation in Honolulu does appear to be an attempt to make Jane's murder go away. His actual investigation wasn't in-depth. It began on Friday. He interviewed the same people that testified at the coroner's inquest, and then... The San Francisco detectives have devoted this Monday afternoon to the interesting sights of Honolulu just as a number of tourists are doing, and as if they had never heard of any Stanford case. They spent a quiet Sunday and took several strolls around town. He leaves two days later. His report is never officially released. It's confidential. But Callendon is more than happy to talk to the press. Mrs. Stanford's death due to natural causes. Natural cause theory. Doubt poison story. Stanford attorney doubts poison theory. Denies poison was found. He attacks the credibility of the Honolulu police and coroner's jury. Detective Reynolds and Callandon were surprised at the neglect of some lines of investigation by the local police. Both the high sheriff and the deputy of Honolulu are quite new to such work as the investigation of a mystery of this character entails. High Sheriff Henry suppressed or ignored evidence. He releases more and more noise into the chaos of Jane's death. Until finally, the idea that Jane was murdered becomes too controversial. The ordeal becomes old news, and the voice of the coroner's jury in Honolulu fades into the distance. The jurors, upon their oath, do say that Jane Lathrop Stanford... Callendon's techniques are already suspicious, but there's more that compromises the investigation. In the Stanford archives, there's correspondence between Dr. Jordan and a man named Samuel Lieb. At one point, Lieb was Jane's lawyer, but he suffered from a stroke in the early 1900s and the job was passed on to Crothers. However, Lieb remained connected to the university by being on the board of trustees. In this letter, Jordan writes to Lieb and says, In considering the manner of the death of Mrs. Stanford, the following are important to consider. Not a single symptom recognized as occurring in strychnine poisoning was present in her case. The symptoms were those of heart failure, with her heart neuralgia or angina pectoris. The heart has not been examined. It arrives to leave on March 22nd, just 23 days after Jane's murder. Why would Jordan send this extremely detailed description of Jane's death to a man who is no longer her lawyer? In 1905, Jane's lawyers are Wilson and Crothers, but Wilson too has sent correspondence from Jordan that extend Wilson's involvement beyond his role as Jane's lawyer. Jordan writes, Kindly remind Detective Callendon that Dr. Humphreys himself was the first to accuse the bottle of carbonate of soda. Perhaps when he had read up the symptoms a little, he found it necessary to bolster up his case by having the bottle made to correspond with his diagnosis. And then later, Jordan explains to Wilson, I am coming to be more and more convinced that the bottle was of bicarbonate was tampered with on the night of Mrs. Stanford's death. Thus, Jordan puts himself in the investigation of Jane's murder. He establishes a connection between him and Callendon, who, as we have heard, is known to lead a sketchy investigation. Wilson and Lee were the missing link between Jordan and Callendon, as Jordan being too involved in the investigation would lead those close to Jane to speculate a cover-up. 
he did have plenty of motivation to hide a murder, as we have already seen. I want to thank you most sincerely for saving me from a course of action which I would have regretted as long as I lived. I never did run away from anything, and I could not afford to begin now. That's a letter from Jordan, in which he thanks Lieb for his help and discretion. But it's never stated why Jordan is offering his thanks to Lieb. He also goes on to mention more than $2 million. Lieb was involved in getting the money from Jane's will to the university following her death and was documented having worked to finalize the endowment and enfranchise the Board of Trustees. Lieb writes, Herewith enclosed, you will find formal acceptance by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University, by myself as its chairman, of the two deeds made by her to such trustees. But why would Lieb be involved at all when he's old and sick, while Crothers is completely competent to act as Jane's lawyer? George Crothers, an early Stanford graduate, served on the Board of Trustees for the University and as Jane's lawyer, who Jane once referred to as her highly prized friend. Mrs. Stanford saw in him the likeness of her son. In this 1946 interview, Crothers reflects on his early years as a student, when he began his friendship with Jane. Even in the university life, she would detain him in conversations at social functions, invite him to her home for conversations, drive her carriage about the campus for a glimpse of his figure. In his turn, he brought her happy views of the university life and its future. He solved innumerable perplexing problems. She would call him up at any hour, present her problem, and leave it with him to solve. Once Lieb stepped down, Crothers was in the perfect position to become Jane's attorney. With such influence, he was capable of making a lot of big financial decisions, even after Jane's death. In the interview, Crothers also mentions that her only withdrawal of property for her personal use and other disposition under the reserve powers referred to consisted of two million in bonds and a one quarter interest in the Pacific Improvement Company. This interest added up to over $6 million, money that the university desperately needed. Tensions heightened during the year leading up to Jane's death, as David Starr Jordan and the Board of Trustees struggled to see eye to eye with Jane. And despite being such a close family friend to her, Crothers sided with Jordan. Mrs. Stanford proposed to take reins of the presidency herself. Crothers dissuaded her. Meanwhile, Jane was beginning to develop alternate plans for the bulk of her wealth. As outlined in Crothers' history of the founding of the university, She said she did not wish to give the Pacific Improvement Company stock to the university in her lifetime, as she hoped to sell it and had other plans for the disposition of some of the proceeds. Only her death would have secured all these funds for the university. Crothers became instrumental in drawing up Jane's will, which gave him control over how this money was distributed. This influence included over 50 changes in the university trust provisions. This great influence had to be protected from challenge. In doing so, the university doesn't go broke. And neither does he. On May 25, 1905, Welton Stanford, Jane Stanford's nephew, offered a $1,000 reward for the conviction of the person who killed his aunt. He acted because after a newspaper flurry, investigation of the mysterious death of Jane Lathrop Stanford suddenly went silent. The only consistency in the story of Jane's death was inconsistency. 
There's one group whose job it is to solve mysteries like Jane's murder, the police. It's hard to know exactly what happened with the investigation, since the records are nowhere to be found, possibly lost in the earthquake of 1906, or, more likely, lying forgotten in some archive. No matter the reason, the only way we can learn about the police investigation is through the newspapers. What we know is that for a while the police in both Honolulu and San Francisco were intensely investigating the case. The Honolulu Police Department, headed by High Sheriff Henry, was the first group to arrive on the scene. He and Deputy Sheriff Rollins oversaw the Honolulu side of the initial investigation. At the same time, an investigation is launched by the San Francisco Police Department, and they send over their own detective, Harry Reynolds. Reynolds is a public official, but his trip to Honolulu is actually being paid for by the Stanford Estate, which suggests that he might not be an impartial investigator. He and Detective Callenden, University Board Member Timothy Hopkins, and David Starr Jordan all come over together. They sail for Hawaii on March 4th and join the Honolulu investigators just after the coroner's inquest is released. While this may seem like the setup for cooperation between the two police departments, the Honolulu and San Francisco parties actually disagree from the start. From the beginning, Sheriff Henry is convinced that Jane was murdered, especially after the coroner's jury comes out with a verdict of poisoning. He also believes that the poison originated in San Francisco. He says, We have done our duty, proving the murder was done. It is now up to the San Francisco police to get the murderer, for nobody here committed the crime. When the San Francisco party returns to the mainland, Henry sends Deputy Sheriff Rollins back to California to aid in the investigation. But Rollins' role in that investigation is never mentioned, which makes you wonder if he ever really played a part. Especially since days after the coroner's jury releases their verdict, the San Francisco party seems to turn on the Honolulu investigators. On March 16th, an article in the San Francisco Call reveals that the San Francisco detectives don't believe there is sufficient evidence to suggest that Jane was poisoned. On the same day, Jordan and Hopkins come out with a statement that they believe Jane died of natural causes, totally disregarding the coroner's report. When Henry hears what they are saying, he accuses the San Francisco party of trying to discredit him. And maybe they were trying to discredit him. Afterwards, the newspapers portray Henry and Rollins in an increasingly negative light. The next day, another article comes out emphasizing Henry and Rollins' lack of experience. Henry had recently been appointed as sheriff after spending years as a prison warden, and Rollins was a young lawyer with no experience in criminology. A week later, two articles are published in which Callenden and Reynolds seem to bolster Jordan and Hopkins' statement and work to discredit the Honolulu detectives. Detective Reynolds and Callenden were surprised at the neglect of some lines of investigation by the local police. Both the High Sheriff and the Deputy of Honolulu are quite new to such work as the investigation of a mystery of this character entails. We heard before that Callenden poisoned the media against the Honolulu detectives, but it looks like Reynolds was in on it too. The two frame Henry as an overworked detective who, quote, had lacked the necessary assistance in sifting the mystery of the Stanford case. With their criticisms, Henry's credibility begins to slip away, along with the credibility of Jane being murdered. The theory that Jordan Hopkins and their physician, Dr. Waterhouse, are advancing, that Jane died of angina pectoris, begins to take over. 
To make their own ideas seem more plausible, it seems like the San Francisco party first has to discredit the findings of the Honolulu investigation. But did the San Francisco detectives actually believe what they were saying? Or were they part of the cover-up? The last we really hear of the investigation in the newspapers is a San Francisco Call article dated March 26th. The article says that the San Francisco police strongly suspect a member of Jane's household of putting the strychnine in the Poland water, but they lack sufficient evidence to make an arrest. Unless he or she confesses, the poisoner will walk free. So the police did believe Jane was poisoned? It's possible. They may have even known who poisoned her. It could all be in the police records. Unfortunately, nobody has seen those records in decades. And no matter what the police believed, the investigation dropped off abruptly after that article was published, at least in the papers. The world has accepted Jordan's explanation. There's no mention of the investigation or Jane's murder until December 30th of that year, when, out of the blue, David Starr Jordan accuses the Honolulu officials of spreading the murder theory to secure fees from the Stanford estate. He then insists, again, that Jane died of natural causes. Which is strange, because at this point, that's the accepted theory. If you found out that the woman, who was essentially your patron, has suddenly died, what would you do? When George Crothers learned of Jane Stanford's death, he immediately turned around from his business trip to Mexico to reallocate Jane's funds directly to the university. I thought that Jane left the university money in her will. She did. However, the money that Crothers moved was money held in a separate trust of which Crothers was the trustee, and Jane intended to use elsewhere, leaving to the university only what remained upon her death. Even though Crothers was the trustee, he didn't have the authority to move the money until the court had probated the will. Crothers acted before anyone else could claim the money, and the trustees accepted this money with almost no question. And this plays into a theme of responses following Jane's death. The world slowly began to just look the other way. From the summer of 1903 until her death in 1905, Jane Stanford served as the president of the Board of Trustees, meaning that she still had control over the purse strings of the university. But if the board worked so closely with Jane, wouldn't they care about the suspicious nature of her death? The school needed money, which it got, and at a very convenient time. So both the board and the university ended up benefiting from her death. But Charles Lathrop, Jane's own brother, was on the board. Crothers once said that Lathrop's biggest weakness was that he would support the truth regardless of his own interests. But isn't backing the truth a good thing, especially if it involves your family? I think it stands as a testament to Crothers' character that he is willing to sacrifice the truth for his own interests. And that explains why even though he was a firm believer that Jane was poisoned, he never spoke out about it in public. Timothy Hopkins was another board member and a very close friend to the Stanfords. He went with Jordan to Hawaii, but there's no concrete reason why. Hopkins became the go-to person to second Jordan's statements about the poisoning. He signed off on press releases and even made news headlines alongside Jordan. And Hopkins' wife, May, was one of Jane's most trusted confidants and friends. So why do those close to Jane have conflicting views on her death? I watched the case of the late Miss Stanford as carefully as one can through the medium of newspapers. Up to the date, the mystery of her death does not seem to have been solved. If newspaper accounts are correct, her case resembles one that occurred under my observation a number of years ago, in which the cause was finally, definitively traced to chronic lead poisoning. I am greatly shocked to hear this morning of the assassination of Mrs. Stanford. Can it be true? The deed is so atrocious as to be incredible. 
This is a horrible death to die. In the midst of the suspicious circumstances surrounding Jane's death, one would think her family members would make an effort to get to the truth. Yet it was family which seemed to be one of the quietest groups after Jane's death. And of all her family members, her brother, Charles Lathrop, should have spoken up. While Jane was widowed and childless at the time of her death, she was survived by her two brothers, Ariel and Charles Lathrop. The brothers worked together to manage Governor Stanford's business affairs, and when the university was founded, to manage its business affairs. I've never seen anything about an Ariel Lathrop. That's because he left the university in 1892. The official story is that he, quote, reached an age where he desired to enjoy the rest of his days without the great responsibility entailed upon him by the management of Stanford's property, end quote. But information from Laura Jones reveals that his dismissal was much more scandalous. He had a fist fight with the horse trainer. And so allegedly that's why he was fired, but there's some text somewhere in the, in the correspondence that he, in someone's hearing, had made a disparaging remark about Leland Stanford Jr. being a mama's boy, and Jane just fired him for it. He got a million dollars and told to go away. Ariel left the farm and returned to the East Coast, leaving Charles to assume full control of the duties formerly shared by the two. Jane soon appointed Charles a member of the Board of Trustees, and later she made him the official business manager of the university. Jane was so confident in his abilities that she advocated for her brother to maintain the positions upon her death. She left him one million dollars in her will, in addition to personal items like the wardrobes of her, her husband, and her son, and all the silver not given to the Board of Trustees. Is Charles the only family member who benefits financially from the will? While it appears that nearly all her wealth went to Charles, she actually left a considerable sum of money to the rest of her family members in the form of assets. If the two were so close, then why didn't Charles investigate his sister's murder? Well, Charles claims that he honestly believed she wasn't murdered. But in a letter that Crothers writes much later in 1947, he testifies the exact opposite. In fact, after the Poland water incident, Lathrop was so worried for Jane that he, along with Lieben Wilson, advised that she get out of town and fast. That's how she ends up in Hawaii. In letters to family friends, Jane sounded quite paranoid about some sort of impending doom. You know, I am going away under peculiar circumstances, and I am not so sure of health and life as heretofore. Death in a natural way would not be a calamity, for I have much, and dearly loved ones waiting for my advent there. Jane's dying wishes were to build a university that would honor her son. If the image of the university was besmirched by scandal, her greatest works, her struggles and fights, would have all been in vain. Perhaps by allowing the scandal surrounding Jane's death to die, Charles gave life to her greatest desire, Stanford University. But that still doesn't answer why there are so many conflicting accounts about Jane's death. Or why David Starr Jordan worked so hard to cover it up. We can't say for sure who killed Jane, and maybe it will never be known. But now we're a little closer to understanding why. Why Bertha Burner may have desired to get rid of Jane, and why David Starr Jordan and his various accomplices could have covered up the murder. It has been said that we die two deaths. The first, a physical death. The second and final is when we are no longer remembered. The investigation of Jane Stanford's mysterious death was sufficient for many, 
even those closest to her. Stanford University received the money it needed to survive, and the turmoil within it ended. The purpose of a university is, at its heart, the pursuit of truth. Yet, when its matriarch was murdered, the case was allowed to fade into history. Standing on one of the oldest corners of Main Quad, Stanford professor Alexander Nimirov reflects that. The official proclamations of what is remembered and what is forgotten are not to be trusted. It is up to those in the present to keep the voices of the past alive, to carry on their legacy even when they are no longer with us. So for now, we tell Jane's story. And maybe someday, people will do the same for us. This has been Who Killed Jane Stanford, the podcast, produced by the following members of the freshman class of 2020. Madeline Curtis. Cameron Tenner. Kirsten Heinrich. Julia Leal. Michelle and Yakanabasi Essien. Katie Lan. Maxine Stern. Jenny Foro. And I'm Chris Aduse-Poku. Thanks for listening. She's a fan.